Good morning. I want to welcome you and say thank you for joining us for worship today. Um, if you are a guest with us, my name is Jerome. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are delighted that you are here. We have something called a connection card that sits on your chair when you come in. Uh, many people who call Radiant Home fill that out, place it in the offering basket, which will not be passed during this season. Uh, there will be ushers at the doors to, to receive your tithe and offering at the end of service. And you could, if you would take that uh, as a guest and, and put some information on there, It'd be an incredible thing to, for us to say thank you for being our guest. Just um, as a matter of fact, I would love to meet you at the very end of service. I stand out in the foyer and we bump elbows now. But uh, would love to come introduce yourself and that'd be great. So thank you for that. I have like a lot of announcements, which I really hate to do because uh, I only have so much time in my sermon, right? But I got to celebrate you and your and, and this church. I don't know if you've noticed, but the carpet you're sitting on looks a little different than it did last week, right? So if you're new to Radiant, uh, just give you a little background. Back in November of 2019, we launched a, a capital campaign called Vision 2020, because 2020 was going to be just that amazing year. It's kind of amazing, but just a little. Uh, and uh, in about six weeks, you raised you all committed over $100,000 towards renovating this facility, and uh, you continue to, to be generous and give towards that. Uh, so thank you, Radiant, for your generosity, but uh, you're sitting on that, and oh yeah, you could clap, yeah. She's... I told my wife to clap at just that exact moment, but uh, you can see we're still in process in this room, this stage, and around the, the, the floor, and uh, if you are a guest with us, the raw concrete going down the hall is not our normal look. So uh, be back next week just because you want to see what it looks like. It's going to be awesome next week, I can't tell you. All right. Uh, one special announcement that also is Vision 2020 related. Uh, when I came to this church about a year and a half ago, a little longer than that now, uh, I, I was looking for the baptismal, like in the stage, and like how do we baptize people? And uh, But we actually have a baptismal on its way here. It'll be here this week. Um, and so kind of on a whim, not like we planned and prayed for a long, long time over this decision. Next week is Baptism Sunday. Uh, no, I'm serious. Yeah, next week, Baptism Sunday. We have a list of people who are like, I want to be baptized. And we've been holding this list for months. And we thought we can't baptize during covid but you know what? There are people who are getting baptized in Mr. COVID saying, this is who I am and what I believe and where, where my allegiance lies. And the guy who's baptizing is wearing a mask. And they're not. So, uh, but be here next week for Baptism Sunday. We are, it's going to be, I'm so excited. I, uh, if you have never actually followed the Lord's example and, and, and have been water baptized to say, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. Uh, you can actually sign up. It's not too late. You can communicate with us, the church office. I think the next, I'll tell you what, I think if you type the word baptism to 317-676-2040, you'll get a link and we can get in touch with you. One last announcement, and then my time is up. Last week I stood here and said, hey, everyone, Sam is going to college, and uh, make sure you greet him and thank him, and guess what? He was in the cage again, so... I look like a liar, but uh, he just happens to come back from college once in a while. But I do have another announcement. It, it, this is becoming kind of a weekly thing. Um, Tony and Michelle Taylor, uh, we've been praying for Tony's job situation, and uh, Tony's the guitarist over here. 
And oh, where's Tony? He probably doesn't want me to point him out over there. I won't point him out. But uh, they are they're moving, and they got a great job. And so sometimes God answers prayer, and you're like, oh, that's not the prayer I was looking for. But we're excited for them and what God is doing in their life. And so um, if you take an opportunity as we leave, just make sure you, you uh, greet them and thank them for their service. Michelle works in our kids' department, and, and Tony obviously is killing it on the guitar, and uh, they'll be greatly missed. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. What a great opportunity we have to, to gather together. It's a privilege that uh, perhaps we take for granted at times. But we, this local congregation is gathered and throughout this county and this city, there are other congregations, other lighthouses that bring you glory. Lord, we pray for those other churches, those who are gathered together today and some are still get scattered, Lord, that we would be the church in the world you've called us to live in, that we would be the church in this moment to shine light to point to you. Lord, speak to us in this message. May we may live the life that you've called us to live with God-given purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was a church kid, and uh, I met you there was a few other church kids in this room. I like, to take, I like to take surveys just because I have the platform and you have to do what I say, like Simon says almost. Uh, anyone who, if you're a church kid, raise your hand. If you grew up in church, raise your hand. All right. If you uh, became a Christian, prayed to receive Jesus, accepted Jesus in your heart, uh, came to faith in Jesus as a child, would you raise your hand? Keep your hand up. This is like Simon says. If, uh, if after you prayed to receive Jesus, you went home, and then seven days later you showed back up at church again, and you prayed to get saved again, seven days later, raise your hand. And seven days after that, and seven days after that, and seven days... I know I'm not the only one. Yes, I see that hand. You remember being a kid growing up in church and getting, like, I, I'd like to tell you that I got saved all the time as a kid because the gospel was presented and I was in awe of God's love, his grace, and his mercy. But quite honestly, I was just afraid of hell, right? <laughs> and somewhere along the way, I realized I don't have to continue to pray that prayer, but, but yet there was that fear of hell that kind of stayed there to, to the point where, honestly, I lived a lot of my Christian life, especially when I was younger, really kind of afraid See, I felt like I was a disappointment to God. I know that uh, I was pretty disappointed in my own performance. I knew my sin issue. I knew God knew it too. And I could fake everybody else out, but I couldn't really fake God out. So I felt like I was a disappointment. Like, like God loved me so much that he sent his son to die, but at the same time, he's pretty disappointed in me. That's a tough way to live. But that's how, for somehow, some way, uh, I kind of lived my Christian life. I remember being a kid... This might have happened more than one occasion. I remember being a kid in, at home with the family, and then all of a sudden, I'm home alone. You know where I'm going with this, right? And I start running through the house, screaming family members' names out because I thought I was, like, left behind in the rapture or something. Like, Mom, Mom, are you here? Because if Mom's here, then I certainly haven't left behind, right? Anyone else ever? Just me? Sometimes I still do that. My wife's like, Jerome, calm down. You see, I, um, I felt like I was just doing my best to make sure I make it. Like God gave me a free gift of salvation. Now it's my job to hold on to it and keep that. Like I didn't earn this, but I can disqualify myself. I was tired and worn out 
exhausted. And there are people who are tired and worn out of playing this game who walk away from faith and say, you know, that's too much. I'll never be able to live up to what it means to be a Christian. If that's what they think the Christian life is, tired and burdened. You know, Jesus talks about having an abundant life. We saw that last week when we looked at the John chapter 10, the very first half, when he says that the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but he comes to bring life abundant, a full and satisfying life. But when you live your Christian life that way, afraid that your salvation's hanging by a string, that's not a very abundant life. That's a burden life. And what's, what the, the, the dangerous thing is you spend all your attention and all your energy trying to just survive, and you fail to actually thrive in the plans and purposes that God has for your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're in John chapter 10. We just saw the, the Good Shepherd passage in the very first half of John chapter 10. We are doing a study through the book of John, and uh, many of you know this, but if you were just joining us for the first time, John writes his purpose statement in John chapter 20, which we haven't arrived at yet, when he says that he wrote these things so that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life by the power of his name. He wants people to know who Jesus is, to believe in him, and to have life in him. Now, where are we in the, like, the journey through the book of John. We've seen a lot of opposition to Jesus. We've seen Jesus at, at different Jewish festivals. We've seen him encounter different people like the woman at the well or, or Nicodemus. But here we are, John, the very last half of John chapter 10, and this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. You never thought we would get there, did you? Jesus, well, let's just read it. Starting in verse 22, John chapter 10. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. Now, I know some of you are like, wait a minute, I thought that was the festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, there's eight crazy nights. I don't know. Anyway, you had to be there in the 90s. He was in the temple, walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, now, listen to the language. The people surrounded him, not just the people approached him. They surrounded him as if, like, the language is... He's not getting away this time. Now, let me just stop and give you a little, little, little context here. He's in the temple. It's Hanukkah. The last time we saw Jesus at the very beginning of this chapter, it was the, right at, at the end of the, the Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths. So on that Jewish calendar, it's about three months since he's been there. They see him, they take their opportunity, and they ask this question. How long are you going to keep us in suspense if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. They weren't like sincere. Remember, this is, the New Living Translation says the people, but um, your translation, if it's more formal equivalent, says the Jews of Jerusalem, which is not just the Jewish people. It's the, it's the religious leaders. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly, because they're, they're setting it. They want to they get it. You know, they want to get them. They want to catch them. Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work that I do in my Father's name, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Let me back up. If you don't know anything more about Hanukkah, except for an Adam Sandler song from the 90s, uh, the Festival of Dedication, or Hanukkah. 
See, there's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, a lot happens in world history, like Alexander the Great conquers everything. He dies. They split the kingdom up. And now you have these Greek kingdoms that rule different parts of this, what used to be a giant kingdom, but different kings. And there was a guy named Antichus Epiphanes, and I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, but you don't know if I am. He conquered Jerusalem. He sets up a pagan altar. He sets up Zeus, where the God of Israel was. Now, the Jewish people, they're not too happy about this, and they revolt, guerrilla warfare style. And there's a guy who's named Judas Maccabees, or Judas the Hammer, who was zealous, who, who he was called the Hammer because he would use the hammer on Jewish people who would actually convert to this Greek religion. So he was making sure people stayed, that they, they, they didn't apostatize their belief. He leads the revolt. And there's people who are wondering, could this be the Messiah? Because they recaptured the temple. They, 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 they kicked the Greeks out, and they're like, whoa, we're going we're gonna to find freedom from our oppressors, the Greeks. Very similar to when Jesus comes on the scene. It wasn't the Greeks anymore. It was the Roman Empire. So they're wondering. Now, the Jew, after they recapture the temple, they, they remove the idols. They have a, 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 a celebration where they consecrate or set apart the temple. It's now holy. We're going to make this holy again, set apart for God. They rededicated the temple with this consecration. It took eight days and as a result, on the calendar, to commemorate and celebrate, we have a holiday called. We have, there is a holiday, unless you're Jewish, you have, most of us. Anyways, there is a holiday called Hanukkah in the last eight days, all right? You got me there? Now, this is what's taking place. Jesus is walking. So this holiday has nothing to do with the Old Testament. This is, it happened in the intertestamental period. But Jesus, yet, he's there. The people surround him. They ask him how long he's going to be in, they're going to keep him in suspense. And he says, I've already told you. Did he tell them? Where did Jesus say, I am the Messiah in the book of John? He doesn't. Because their expectations of the Messiah and what he is as the fulfillment of the Messiah are vastly different. They're looking for a military leader to lead them out from Roman rule. And Jesus, we know, came a different way. But Jesus did tell them when he says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down his life for the sheep. He told them, and not only did he tell them, he showed them. Look at this, verse 25. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. See, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would do the very things that Jesus has done, that we've read him, uh, that we've read that he's done in this book. Look, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 through 6. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. Did we just see that? Yes. And unplug the ears of the deaf, the lame will leap like deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. He's told them, he's showed them, and yet they don't believe. Why do they not believe? What's their reasons for not believing? Well, we've already talked about, they have an expectation of what the Messiah is supposed to be. They've rejected the evidence that God has given them, that Jesus says, it's the, the work that I do in my Father's name is evidence. They've rejected that. And what we see, what we read was, you are not part of my sheep. Because unlike the religious leaders in Jerusalem, his sheep understand his words, listen to his voice. His sheep, he knows them, and they know him because they obey him. Jesus speaks of 
belief, right, right here in this passage, he speaks of belief, not in terms of like cognitive knowledge, like I believe, but like in terms of personal relationship. The shepherd and the sheep. And then he says, you know what? You're asking me if I'm Messiah, but I'm so much more. Because he ends this with this. He brings out the, the, the imagery of the shepherd from the last time he was in Jerusalem, three months prior. He brings it out and says this, verse 30, the Father and I are one. Jesus' final answer about his identity when they're asking who you are, so much more than the Messiah. The Father and I are one. This oneness with God, this oneness with God, the Father that angers and enrages the religious leaders. Let's keep reading verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I think Jesus is like super cool right here. Like they're picking up stones to stone him. And he's like, Pfft. so which of the good works that I did, uh, what are you going to, let me just read it. Okay, Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those are you going to stone me? That's like cool under pressure right there. The Jews answered him, it's not for the good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it's not written, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into this world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So Jesus makes them angry by saying, I and the Father are one. They want to stone him. He's pretty cool. He's like, okay, which of my good works are you going to stone me for? And they're like, no, 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 it's, it's for the blasphemy. Well, it's the blasphemy. He calls himself God. They think and they hear that he's calling himself God. But is he calling himself God? He just says, I am the Father of one. You could be one in a lot of different ways. But they were correct. They understood what Jesus was saying. Some of you were told, like, Jesus never says that he is God in the Bible. I like this one. He just said he's God. The witness of the book of John verifies that. They understood what Jesus was saying, what he was getting at. And ironically, they didn't understand what he was saying. See, Jesus appeals to the law. He appeals to, the, to this, this passage in Psalm chapter 82, or Psalm 82, verse 6. Just for those of you who are like super technical, we refer to the law as like the Pentateuch, the very beginning of the Old Testament, but it's not unprecedented to call all of the Old Testament the law. So he appeals to like your law, says this, Psalm 82, 6, 7 says this, I say you are gods, you are, all, you are all children of the Most High, but you will die like mere morals and fall like every other ruler. So what is this verse about? There's a lot of debate, and quite honestly, we can go down some sort of exegetical rabbit hole, which is not going to be worth our time, because I'll give you my opinion here in a second based on my study, but, but quite honestly, the point of this thing is Jesus was giving them an, a question that they couldn't answer, and if they answered that question, they couldn't stand by their accusation that he was blaspheming. If, it's, if God can call mere humans gods with a little g, then can you question me, the one who is 
not me, Jerome, but me, I'm Jesus. Can you question me for calling myself the son of God? Now, based on what I've studied and in my opinion, I believe this is the judges of Israel. They were acting as agents of God. Their judgments were God's judgments. God was in their midst, and yet they weren't doing what they should have been doing. Therefore, they will die like mortals. But once again, it's more important to recognize that his question here is kind of rhetorical. He's setting up, he's maneuvering out of this situation. But there is a word in that response. If, you, if God could call mere mortals God with little g, then how much more me, the one who has been sent and the one who has been in the ESV consecrated. I read the word set apart. But there's that word consecrated again. Where did we see that word? Did I say the word consecrated about five minutes ago? Ten minutes ago? That whole thing that they're celebrating, it's Hanukkah. The rededication of the temple, the, the setting apart of the temple for God's glory. Once again, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's consecrated. I'm the one who's set apart for God's glory. I'm the fulfillment of Hanukkah. Just like he was the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, just like he's the fulfillment of the Passover, just like he was the fulfillment of, I mean, we've seen this again and again in the book of John. And then he says, listen, if I'm not doing God's work, then you have reason not to believe. But if I am doing God's work, then you don't have reason. In fact, I'm going to give you one last invitation. One last invitation. If you don't believe me, believe my works. Isn't God gracious? The people who want to kill him, and there's grace extended. Thank God for grace. And then the story ends. They don't accept that invitation. They want to, they want to arrest him. But does the story end? It doesn't. It goes on. I mean, like the encounter, the story in Jerusalem ends. But this chapter goes on. A couple of narrative moments from the, the, the author John. Kind of just movements of Jesus. We could probably ignore that. Or can we? Look, at, look with me. John chapter 10, starting in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. His life was in danger. He escapes. His time had not yet come. Verse 41. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. I wonder if John, the author, had a point that he was trying to make. You have these religious leaders in Jerusalem who are not believing. He goes across to where John the Baptist had his ministry, and now many believe. Many believe. They remember John the Baptist's ministry. They, 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 they referenced John the Baptist. They remember, and they're so different from the Jews in Jerusalem with their self-righteousness and their attitudes of, of you know, we got it all undercover. We, got it, we, we, we know everything. Look at John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist's ministry? He's putting the spotlight on Jesus, not himself. You yourself bear witness to me. This is John chapter 3, when we saw John the Baptist earlier, months ago. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's a contrast there between those who believe that saw humility and the spotlight on Jesus and those who don't. There's a connection between belief and humility. But that's not the sermon I'm preaching today. There's a lot of sermons you could preach in this text, but I don't want to draw, drag this out any longer than I need to. I want to come back to this thing that we started the message with, this whole idea of being worn out and tired, trying to make it. This idea of God loves me, but he's disappointed in me. Go back with me to verse 28 through 29. I, had to, I, f- I feel like I had to walk through the passage to, give it, to, to, to do it justice, but I want to zoom in, as you could zoom in on a number of different places. I want to zoom in on these verses. This, this, this whole encounter is about who Jesus is. They're asking him his identity, and in the course of his identity, he brings up the good shepherd once again, the good shepherd that was introduced three months prior in the first half of John chapter 10. The good shepherd gives eternal life to his sheep. He had already said that he gives abundant life, but now we see that That abundant life is his eternal life that he gives to his sheep. It's a life that he's been talking about throughout the gospel. We've seen it represented by water, by bread, by light. Then read the last part of verse 28 and verse 29 with me. No one can snatch them from me. This is the good shepherd. No one can snatch them, the sheep, from me. For my father has given them to me. And he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hands. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll see that, wait a minute, is it in Jesus' hands or the Father's hands? And the answer is yes. The wolf that he introduced in verse 12 last week, can't snatch. The thieves and robbers from verse 8 in chapter 10, can't snatch. Nothing The rock won't move and his word is strong. See, Jesus does what the Father does and there's a saving act or there's a preserving act that Jesus has to his sheep, to those who are his. And it's the Father who, who holds them. And the Father, you can't outwit the Father. You can't overpower the Father. You can't steal from Father God. Nothing can sever that relationship between a believer and Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, 3. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Last week we looked at the point and the big idea was that Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows, he guides, and he guards his sheep. This week, Jesus once again is the good shepherd whose sheep are secure in his hand. Now some of you are sitting out there going, oh my word, I didn't know that my pastor was a Calvinist. Um... He stopped playing because he's so shocked. <laughs> and some of you are saying, praise the Lord, my pastor's a Calvinist. I, I'm a Calvinian, so let's just get that straight. This is not an issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Some of you grew up in one tradition and another tradition, and some of you don't really care. You just love Jesus, and that's cool. But listen, no matter which way you lean, your Bibles read the same thing. This verse is in your Bible. So is this. This is not about Calvinism and Arminianism. This is about Jesus Christ and his church and his sheep. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. 
And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by guiding you, by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he'll give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And then again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Jesus is the good shepherd whose sheep are secure in his hand. If you are worn out and tired and a burdened sheep today, Jesus has you. Here's what I want you to do. First of all, do nothing but rest in the hands of Jesus. You cannot nail yourself to the cross. You know that you didn't earn this thing. And guess what? Your sin, your, you, you were given a gift when you, were, when you were in your sin and now you're no longer a slave to sin. That gift is still a gift. like this when I'm preaching, when I, I think that people in the audience are going, well, this guy thinks he knows it all and he, he's figured it all out. No, I'm preaching to me here. When I say this next phrase, it's, I wrote this because I'm thinking about Jerome. But some of you, I'll just change it to us, need to stop trying to keep something that we can't lose. On your worst day, you are deeply loved. On your worst day, because of what Jesus did on the cross, you're fully acceptable to God. Rest in his hands. Because when you rest in his hands, you're not spending all your attention and all your energy on just trying to make it. This is not survivor. Again, a 90s reference, I'm sorry. I think the enemy likes it when we live our life that way, right? All my energy and attention is just trying to make it to heaven but I never earned it in the first place. But if I'm distracted by that, then I'm not living out the God-given purpose and plan he has for my life. I have nothing left. Second thing I'd say is be gospel-centered, not performance-centered, which is very related to what I just said. Some of you, once again, me, are conditioned towards shame when it comes to your performance as a Christian. When you miss the mark, you run and hide from God. You're ashamed of yourself. You know God's ashamed of you. We're conditioned to shame. And we think of, we think of repentance as like punishment. Uh, if you've ever raised a pet and your pet makes a mess and you stick your pet's face in that mess, don't judge me. I don't do that. I'm just saying some of you, I don't know if that's proper pet etiquette or not. our pets growing up without a father because I'm just hands off, right? But that's not repentance. That's not God holding your face to your sin saying, look at you, look what you've done. He's saying, turn and come to me. Repentance is a gift. It's a grace of God. It reminds us of our desperate need for him. We started this thing in need of him and we continue to need him day in and day out just as much as day one. If you're not a Christian, this passage is, you know, you know what I was thinking is, perhaps it's 
this very thing about being worn out and tired, because it, it, it could be that you look at the Christian life, those you've known, or maybe even your own life, and you think, boy, I don't know if this is for me. But what you're looking at, if you're looking at it from that perspective, is, is religion. It's doing what I have to do to earn right favor with God and right standing with God, but that's not Christianity. There's so much in this passage. Jesus is one with the Father. He's the God-man, the only one who could take our place, live a life that we could not live and die to death that our sins deserve in our place, on our behalf, that we'd be made right with God. He is the shepherd, and he'll hold you in his hand. That's an invitation, like the invitation he gave those Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. And like any invitation, you can accept or receive or just kind of leave it unanswered, but the invitations are intended for a response. And the response isn't coming forward and praying a prayer, although we'll have elders here to pray with you, anyone really, but at the end of service, elders will come and make themselves available. But that's usually just the physical sign of what already happens in your heart when you decide, yeah, I believe and I'm calling on Jesus. There is a freedom, there's a joy, and there's a lightness to the Christian life. I'm not saying it's always easy. I'm not saying that you'll never have problems. But there's a way in which we live our life with Christ's life in us that has freedom and joy to it. And if you're tired and wore out, man, let him hold you. That you may live out his purpose for you and your God-given destiny. I'm convinced that we sing songs like we sang, and I, I kind of ended the worship time by saying this. We could sing all those songs we sang earlier in service again because all those songs feed this understanding of him holding us because all those songs are about his great love for us. Let me read to you a reminder of his love. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecution or hunger or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Helen, that's an amen. Amen. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, even your bad performance. Thank God for grace. I'm going to close in prayer. The band's going to come and we're going to sing a song. It's, it's the doxology. No, doxology. It's the blessing. And I love it because I don't, I mean, the Lord keep you. <laughs> Isn't that what this is about? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you indeed hold us in your hand 
Thank you for the, the good shepherd. Father, I pray that uh, for those who are tired or burdened, who feel weighed down, who need a touch of lightness and joy in their walk with you, <clears throat> God, that you would do just that. Restore that joy, restore that freedom, restore that lightness in their step. <clears throat> 